I'm going to talk a little bit, probably about like 20 minutes, uh, try to keep it short, uh, about the, you know, uh, inspirations for this novel and, and the writing process, the research process rather, um, some just kind of basic information about how this novel came to be, then I'm, I'm more than happy to take your questions. So the uh, sort of the first, uh, you know, time I really thought about this story, the inception of this story uh, was about 2004, 2005. Um, uh, those of you who might have been in Tehran at the time, you probably remember that uh, there was a pretty substantial uh, strike organized by the bus drivers union in west of Tehran. I mean, it wasn't uh, several uh, spots in the city, but the west was the center of it. And uh, the bus drivers, uh, you know, basically shut down uh, that that half of Tehran. You know, they kind of stopped, uh, you know, driving their buses. And if you're familiar with Tehran transportation, especially at the time where you know the subway was not uh, as uh, you know like common and widespread as it is now, uh, the main uh, you know burden of public transport in the city was was uh, carried by the buses. And so when the bus drivers stopped working, you know, suddenly that part of the city was absolutely chaotic. Uh, people were kind of scrambling around, you know, trying to find a taxi or find a way to get to work. And everybody was uh, mad. And uh, uh, yeah, it was really, it really kind of hampered uh, the flow of uh, life in the city. So I used to live not far from the bus terminal where the strike took place. And you know, watching uh, the aftermath of that, how the city was crippled uh, after that event, it dawned on me, uh, you know, for the first time maybe, uh, that uh, the power that the union, a workers' union, can exercise on the state is so massive and so effective. You know, if if you have like a powerful organization, if you have, you know, people who are enthusiastic about the cause and involved in that process, you can do basically anything, you know, you can really force the state and, you know, try to kind of get uh, concessions from them and so on. Um, I was kind of remotely uh, aware of the history of uh, workers strike in the country. I read a little bit about that, but that because I never, you know, actually witnessed it firsthand, I've never experienced it in my own life. Uh, I really had no idea what what it could do. Uh, that was, uh, you know, the moment uh, that I realized uh, this is a subject that I want to know more about. And you know, being like a novelist uh, by trade, uh, I thought that maybe uh, one day I should uh, write about this. Uh, subject, this story. So then over years, while I was in Iran, I, you know, kind of uh, every time, and I went everywhere by, by buses, uh, I talked to uh, the drivers, you know, sometimes uh, just after, after the hour, that night, you know, I kind of walked by uh, the terminal where the buses were parked, I kind of hung around and uh, tried to sort of befriend the bus driver and, you know, talk, like do some small talks and learn more about uh, like the nitty gritty of their daily job, what they do, uh, you know, day in, day out. 
So that was part of the research uh, process that, you know, I started there, maybe 2006, 2007. I was, you know, while doing other things on the side, I was kind of dealing with that subject as well. Um, then uh, another, uh, you know, uh, so this book has basically two aspects. Maybe I should uh, actually give you like a little kind of two line plot summary of it. So you know what I'm talking about here. Uh, this book, Then the Free Swallow Him, is about a bus driver, as I said, in Tehran. Uh, he's a guy who's basically a nobody. He's never been involved in politics, and he has lost his parents uh, tragically before the revolution. And after that, he's like a lonely man. And, you know, just uh, for 25 years, he's been just basically sitting behind the wheel and, and, and driving a bus around Tehran. Um, so that's that's the protagonist, and you know, uh, through one of his friends, somewhat inadvertently, he gets uh, involved in politics and joins the, the strike that I just pointed out, and ends up in prison in Evin Prison, north of Tehran. Uh, it's a notorious uh, prison for you know political prisoners. For those of you who know about it, so uh, the bulk of the novel is set in that prison. And it's divided into two parts. One of them is uh, there are like a few chapters in solitary confinement. There are a few chapters in the interrogation room. Uh, you read about the, you know, like the interrogation process, interactions between him and his interrogator. His name is Hai Said. The protagonist's name is Eunice. Um, so then another uh, subject that, uh, you know, uh, I was thinking about uh, was just prison novel as a genre. You know, it has like a long, uh, pretty rich history in the history of literature, especially in Latin America and the Middle East. I mean, for obvious reasons, uh, there are lots of uh, you know prison novels around. From you know, just off the top of my head, uh, the Kiss of the Spider Woman by Manuel Puig, or uh, you know. Uh, uh, Sonola Ibrahim's uh, novel, That Smell, which is uh, set in uh, prison in Egypt. There are lots of them around in, in Iran as well. Um, so I read through that uh, body of text, the, the prison novels. I, I read quite a lot of them. And one thing stood out to me, uh, which was uh, even though there are like so many prison novels out there, very few of them are actually, you know, focused on the solitary confinement as the, you know, as like the main part of uh, like the story or the main, uh, you know, prison experience of the protagonist. And I was surprised first uh, by, you know, realizing that because not just in Iran, but, you know, in, in a lot of the countries around the world, solitary confinement is a really big part of the prison experience, especially for political prisoners. Um, so I was wondering why that, uh, you know, is not addressed adequately in that body of text. Then later on, I, you know, uh, it kind of, I, I, I think I know why, and, and maybe mainly for craft reasons, like the craft of the novel, because in solitary, all you have is a person sitting basically in a cage, right, in a very small room, uh, you know, that person can't do anything, you know, there's no one to talk to, can't even move that much. So that's basically a nightmare for, for a novelist, right? To have a character trapped in a very small space, can't do anything at all. 
So you need to find a way to uh, basically through, you know, writing about the psychology of that character or like very little interactions that are uh, possible in that setting uh, between the character and uh, his or her environment. Uh, through that, you've got to find a way to, you know, move the uh, narrative forward. And it's hard, you know, and it's very possible that, uh, you know, you have, it gets sort of stagnated now and then you get into like really big obstacles, you know, in, in the process of telling your story and uh, makes it basically impossible, the solitary confinement situation to, uh, you know, uh, to, to make it a part of a novel. But precisely because it, it seemed impossible, I kind of decided to take it on, partially because, you know, a lot, I have a lot of friends in Iran who've been through that experience and solitary really kind of changed them for good. You know, they, they, it really does something to the mind, especially when you're there more than, you know, for more than two weeks, 20 days, even that is, doesn't seem that long, but that's enough to, you know, really kind of rewire your, your brain, mess with your kind of thinking process and your perception of, of the world when you when you get out of there. So I decided to uh, take that on uh, as uh, like the main sort of narrative pivot of this book. So a lot of it uh, is set in solitary and there's Eunice, you know, by himself in that little room. So I had to, you know, find a way uh, to uh, make it move basically, right? to make it a part of the plot. And uh, what I did for that was just starting to talk to the people who have been in solitary. And I mean, unfortunately, uh, for like real life, but fortunately for this book, uh, I have a lot of uh, friends who have actually been there. I mean, if you're even, you know, like a little bit involved in politics in Iran, especially, uh, not especially basically since the 1979 revolution, Chances are that uh, either yourself or someone close to you uh, has spent some time uh, in a solitary cell in Evin prison or elsewhere. And so, yeah, I have, uh, I, you know, I, uh, when I was thinking uh, about my friends, I realized that I have about like a dozen, uh, I know about a dozen people who have that. So I started contacting them and trying to, you know, have them tell their stories. Um, what I was really struck by was uh, how reluctant uh, they were, uh, you know, about uh, talking about solitary. So everybody's experience in within like the first couple of months in, in that prison has two parts, as does the, uh, the experience of Eunice, the protagonist of this book. Uh, so you, uh, you know, for most of the day, uh, you're in the solitary cell by yourself. Then usually a few hours a day, sometimes it can go up to like eight, 10 straight hours of interrogation. And that's basically all your life there. You, you only see your interrogator as a, as a human being, as another human being or the guards in the prison. And otherwise you're on your own in a very, very small room. And so when I was asking uh, the people that I was interviewing for this project, I was asking them to talk about the, uh, the, their experiences, tell me their stories. I noticed the really stark difference between uh, these two aspects of uh, their time in solitary. 
uh, they were pretty, you know, quite willing to talk about the interrogation process, right? Uh, they had lots of stories about, you know, their kind of back and forth uh, with the interrogator, how things, you know, uh, went in the interrogation room. They had a lot of funny stories actually about the interrogation process. Lot, lots of them, you know, uh, remembered funny details about the interrogator. They, you know, I don't know, mimic their accents and, and that kind of things. Uh, but when it came to solitary, right, when I wanted to wanted them to talk about their time in solitary confinement, a lot of them didn't even talk. They just refused uh, to uh, say a word about it. And if I pushed them, they, they got really angry. Um, yeah, so that kind of goes a, a long way to show how sort of deep and hurtful uh, the, the trauma of uh, that experience really is uh, for, for people who, you know, who, who go through it. But eventually I was, you know, lucky enough uh, to have maybe five, six people uh, talk to me about their time in solitary. And, you know, I kind of gathered their stories, uh, put, put them together with the other stories that I collected from my readings, um, you know, from books and other accounts by you know, uh, non-Iranians as well, including a lot of, uh, actually I read a lot of accounts by uh, American inmates, right? Because uh, here it's very common as well. In fact, I mean, lots of people don't know that, but solitary confinement in like the modern sense of the word is an American invention, right? It, uh, first time uh, as a you know, punitive measure, it was carried out in Philadelphia in the, in the 18th century. Um, yeah, so uh, these two, uh, th this, these were two uh, sides of the story. So the bus drivers union uh, and the strike and what I saw in Tehran that, uh, you know, basically uh, planted the first seed of this book. Then moving on into the prison uh, chapters, the experience of solitary, I kind of uh, worked a lot and talked to uh, those friends to whom I'm incredibly indebted. I mean, without them, this book wouldn't have existed. Uh, so that, uh, you know, gathering of those accounts and sort of amalgamation of, uh, you know, those kind of uh, first person accounts with like a lot of kind of reading uh, research that becomes the material for the solitary chapters. Then there was the interrogator, another main character, and the novel is the interrogator, same as Har Said. And uh, I also uh, uh, thought a lot about that character too. And I read a lot of uh, accounts by, you know, former prisoners, people who were in, in jail in Iran and, you know, came out and, and wrote memoirs about it. And what I noticed in those memoirs and, and, and novels was that uh, they're very focused on the individual, like the, the character of the interrogator as a person. And that, uh, you know, eventually in a lot of those accounts, you've got, you know, like a good and evil dichotomy, pretty, you know, clear cut good and evil dichotomy or the, where the protagonist of the book is on the side of the good and the interrogator is on, on the other side. So I uh, wanted to transcend that dichotomy and uh, through those characters sort of labor a system within which they are operating. Uh, so, you know, uh, 
I try to make clear in the book that uh, this interrogator, because he seems very sort of spontaneous uh, all the time, and you know, he suddenly kind of turns around and something kind of changes the inter uh, the direction of the interrogation process, uh, makes a lot of unexpected moves through the book as they do in real life. So that, uh, you know, uh, when you read that or when you experience that, they might come off as a little kind of crazy or erratic. But the fact is they are really following a very strict protocol for interrogation. You know, there are rules they have to follow. You know, there are methods that they, you know, learn and study and practice and then, you know, apply them uh, on prisoners. And they need to report to their seniors, right, to their senior officers. So I thought that the evil character, the villain, if you like, of this book is not the, uh, the, the interrogator like the, as an individual. It's the system or that protocol rather, right? And this is, you know, uh, if you take that interrogator out and put another interrogator, then, you know, the new person would do the exact same thing. So uh, this became eventually, maybe not, uh, I didn't intend it to be like that in the beginning, but eventually th this became a novel about bureaucracy and the kind of the ruthlessness of a bureaucratic process in which uh, both the interrogator and the, the you know, interrogated, one willingly, one of them unwillingly, uh, sort of function as cogs, as, as two different cogs that are, you know, in sort of intention. Um, so yeah, that, uh, that's basically, there are like a little bit of like a scattered comments about how, how this book came about and the research process uh, behind it. I think I can, I can just stop here and uh, yeah, um, I'm looking forward to hearing from you and take your questions. Thanks for listening to me. I, I, yeah, I hope you're not bored so far. That was wonderful. Thank you so much. We do have questions coming in, so I'm going to pass them on. One viewer says, this case presents a solitary confinement traumatic event, which is related to a collective trauma experience as well. The mm -hmm. magnitude of the traumatic effect on human psyche is massive and overwhelming. What have you discovered in terms of human resiliency of these individuals? Yeah, I, I, it's... Um... I don't know, you know, uh, it, a lot of them just don't become the same person anymore. I know it's like customary to talk about resiliency and how people sort of get through that, you know, process and come out victorious on, on, on the other side. Uh, not victorious, but fairly unscathed on the other side. But I didn't see that to be the case, honestly, in most of, most of the cases that I encountered, when it, especially when you talk to people and, you know, have them go deep into that experience. You, you see how traumatized and wounded uh, they are. Uh, even, you know, again, some of them were there for like a couple of weeks, not, not even that long. Um, so uh, yeah, I, uh, more than uh, resiliency or, you know, more than kind of focusing on human strength as they go through uh, this ordeal, I prefer to, you know, uh, us to discuss how we can abolish uh, solitary confinement as, you know, as a kind of practice, as a punitive practice, as part of the legal system. And it's common across the world. It's not just the, Iran and the U.S. Because it is definitely, a, uh, you know, a form of torture, psychological torture, lots of times physical torture. 
as well. And, you know, uh, most people, if not all of them who experience that uh, never really become whole or, or never become the same person that they were before that. So, yeah, there's obviously resiliency. I mean, uh, there are incredible people, really, really impressive people with, you know, really strong will and, you know, like determination that I can never even, you know, uh, imagine like having myself. But eventually at the end of the day, uh, when we're, you know, as we're talking about a form of torture, uh, I think abolishing it and, you know, just uh, basically jettisoning it out of the law should be our main focus. Thank you. You have written fiction in both Persian and English. What are some of the differences in the writing experience? Is one more useful for fiction? They're just different. They're so different. I, you know, I didn't actually expect uh, to see so much difference or experience so much difference myself. But what I have, uh, you know, come to believe is that uh, uh, in a different language, you're basically a different person. Uh, it, it's not like, uh, you know, you're writing the same thing or you're translating in, in, in your mind. Uh, when you, you know, get down to write something like fiction or poetry, you know, these uh, works of literature that are deeply involved uh, with language, where like the music of sentences matters a lot, when, you know, like the word choices are crucial, much more than what you see in an academic paper. Uh, when you kind of get to that level, get down to that level of writing in a different language, uh, then you are a different person. Uh, and uh, for me now, I, I feel like I have like two different universes in my head and they have a very little kind of overlap. So when I, if I sit down and write in English, you know, there's like this other person writing in English than in Farsi, there's another person. So yeah, I'm basically like in a very kind of schizophrenic uh, state, you know, kind of trapped between two languages. But uh, I don't uh, want to talk about, you know, uh, which one is better, or I, I think it's, it's, that question doesn't quite make sense. Um, they have different abilities, different, you know, capabilities, and you can do different things with them. I mean, English is obviously like the lingua franca of the world, and, and uh, Farsi at the moment is kind of very limited and suppressed, really, in, in, in that corner of the world. Uh, so in terms of you know, like the literary market or literary reception around the world, obviously English has a, a completely different status. But uh, when it comes down uh, to page and, and the words on the page, yeah, what I see is different. I, I don't know how to compare them. Uh, they're different, yeah. Thank you. Uh, one viewer writes, what does the fish swallowed him in your title refer to? It's a line from the Quran. And this is the story of Yunus uh, the prophet, or Jonah. Um, so uh, the the book uh, is, you know, as I said, it starts in uh, in a strike and in the bus terminal. Then the guy Yunus, uh, the protagonist, ends up in solitary confinement. Then at the end of the book is kind of he he gets out of it, right? So the the arc of the narrative. Uh, somewhat very loosely is based on the story of Jonah, the, the prophet. And in this book, you know, uh, the belly of the beast uh, or the belly of the fish or, or the whale in, in the Quran, I took it as a metaphor for solitary confinement, right? It, it's a very kind of dark 
small sort of suffocating claustrophobic environment where this character is stuck. So yeah, that's what the title refers to. Thank you. The book came out in 2020, almost 10 years after you left Iran. How do you think being distant from Iran affected your book? Did it make the writing process more complicated? Not uh, because I went back to Iran until 2015, right? I lived outside Iran, but I traveled back. I spent a couple of months a year there up to 2015. And I started writing this book in actually in 2016, right? And then it, it took a while to come out. It's a very long sort of drawn out process publication um, in the US. Um, so because I started writing that immediately after I, you know, uh, I decided not to go back. Uh, it didn't affect me that much distance. There was not much of a distance anyway, right? But uh, I'm feeling that for the next book, which is um, I'm writing now and I'm about to finish. Um, now that I've been outside the country for almost five years, then, you know, I when I sit down to write about like a scene that is set in Tehran and then this, this or that neighborhood in Tehran, I feel like this longing, this yearning to kind of just go back even though for 10 minutes and like smell, you know, the, the smell the street and or just take a look around and see the houses or, you know, just stare at the asphalt for like two minutes. And these are the, the, like this, you know, kind of impressions that you get from a setting and then they, you can kind of process them into fiction. So I'm, I'm missing that right now, yeah. Thank you. Has anything changed in the prison system in Iran since you started writing the book, for better or for worse? It always gets worse. Um, I don't know, like uh, details of that. How you know if the if the law has changed? I, I probably not. I, I don't think that any there has been any substantial change. And if there is, it's usually for for the worse. Um, no, I should haven't followed it. You know, like that. Uh, you know, like the. Uh, legal system, news, uh, I, I'm, I'm really not kind of authority on that at all. I don't know. And going back to an earlier comment you made, uh, does being away from Iran for so long, do you still see the ability for yourself to write in Persian again? Or would your next project be in English? It will be in English. And I, right now, it's a little, it's getting hard, actually. Um, I think if I go back there and, you know, read a like Persian for a couple of months and, you know, kind of practice a little more, I will be kind of, you know, back on track. But right now, if you ask me to, you know, sit down and write something in per a story, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about fiction now because I, I think that's like a different kind of level of uh, engaging with language. Uh, if you ask me to sit down and write a story tomorrow in Persian, I'll probably like falter and uh, have a trouble, but maybe if you give me a couple of months, I'll, I'll be fine. Thank you. And someone asks if there is a Farsi translation available of this book. It's in the making. Um, so we'll see when it's kind of a, a slow translator is working on it. So we'll see when he's done. Yeah. And has writing about these kinds of traumatized cases affected you or traumatized you? And how do you cope with that? Not, I, I guess not. I mean, it's, I don't, you know, want to kind of give my, the, give myself too much credit uh, in the process. You know, I, I just, from, from a distance, I've been just talking to 
uh, those people. If anything, in, and you know, the, the thing that hurt me the most was that uh, uh, those interviews basically jeopardized my friendship with a couple of those people, you know, especially in the moments that I pushed a little bit, you know, too hard for details about like solitary confinement. Some of them got angry and, and got upset. So it took a little bit of, you know, like amending afterwards. But uh, no, I, you know, I, I think it's just totally different to be there, you know, just talking about it or hearing about it, uh, not gonna do much to you. You talk about the protocol in place for the interrogations as an entity beyond us. Do you think this is your voice for criticizing religions? Yeah, I mean, the uh, Islamic law is, you know, definitely uh, part of uh, that protocol. I mean, a lot of uh, those procedures are, are inspired uh, by those, you know, religious uh, principles. But, you know, I, it's very modern at the same time, right? It, uh, it's very Kafkaesque and uh, they like the order uh, of it and like the strict uh, kind of dry uh, bureaucratic language of it. Uh, yeah, it's more reminiscent of, I don't know what you read in like a communist, you know, uh, Stal Stalinist uh, regimes, uh, you know, the second half of 20th century, or maybe the dictatorships in, in Latin America. Is that the why being inspired by, you know, like this, uh, the Islamic law? It's a very kind of modern, maybe specifically 20th century uh, form of, uh, you know, uh, ruthless and, and a bureaucracy. Thank you. There is some parallel between your novel and Roberto Rossellini's film called General della Rovere, an ordinary man performing an unusual, extraordinary role. Is that part of the theme, ordinary humans as tormented heroes? I haven't seen that movie, but the, the, the uh, character in this book doesn't uh, do anything heroic. heroic. Um, at all. Uh, he's a nobody. He's just kind of being uh, played around. Uh, he, he very accidentally uh, is uh, involved. He, he is involved in that uh, process. And when he goes to Evan, he becomes like the perfect scapegoat for uh, you know what was going on uh, at the time in the country. Uh, and he's pretty passive, actually. If anything, he's the opposite of heroic. Uh, he doesn't really do anything to save himself, you know, he kind of resists uh, the, the, a little bit, but he breaks down uh, within a month after imprisonment and just confesses to everything they want him to confess. Um, yeah, no, it's, uh, he's the opposite of a hero, definitely. He's, you know, is just some guy who, you know, who was at the wrong time, wrong place, and uh, he goes down like this, you know, crazy spiral of Iranian politics, and his life is destroyed ba ba basically over nothing. There are accounts of solitary confinement in Persian poetry as well. How is American solitary confinement different, if at all? Well, for one thing, uh, in Iran, there's a limit to the time you can you spend in solitary, right? It's I, I don't know what the latest is, but it, uh, it it was about 21 days, right? So three weeks. After three weeks, you had to be taken out. It's usually not unless there's a very sort of exceptional case. Um, they don't uh, keep you there for too long. In the U.S., uh, 
there are people in solitary for like 20 years, 30 years, 40 years even, right? So they, they spend their whole, you know, their, you know, sentence to life. And then uh, the rest of their lives, basically, the rest of the prison time, uh, they just sit there in solitary confinement, right? In, in the solitary cell. And yeah, it's, it's pretty insane. I mean, it's uh, obviously inspired by, you know, this kind of, uh, I think, pretty crazy Protestant idea that if you leave someone alone, you know, with their gods in a room, then, you know, overall they, I don't know, like the, the catharsis happens and they, you know, get the courage to face their sins and purify their soul. And they will come out as, you know, like a, I don't know, man of God or something, right? And that was the, the original idea back then in the 18th century. Um, it's not talked about here, you know, in, in, in so many wars, but I think it is still like the underlying uh, idea of solitary confinement in the U.S. as well. So that's why th this very sort of strictly religious dimension is involved. And, and because of that, uh, people just stay there basically forever. And when you read the, their accounts, uh, you see the level of despair and almost aggression, uh, you know, that uh, it kind of leaps out of the page. It really grabs you by, by the throat when you read those accounts. There's nothing like that in the Iranian, actually, accounts of solitary confinement because of the time period they spend there. So, yeah, I think the, uh, the U.S. accounts that I've uh, read were more sort of brutal and you know unnerving and demoralizing than the Iranian ones. Thank you. Have you experienced or tried to live in solitary yourself um, as you were writing these parts of the book? Yeah, that's a kind of interesting uh, story because so when I uh, started working on that, I thought that I can uh, capture solitary experience without being there. No, I haven't been there, by the way. That's like the answer to answer the first question. Uh, I've had the honor of being interrogated, but never you know, went to, to, to jail. Um, when I was uh, writing that, yeah, I, I thought that through research and imagination, I'd you know, probably be able to capture the solitary experience. But I was very naive. Uh, as I soon realized, uh, because, you know, there are like certain human experiences that, you know, kind of defy language, really, you know, defy really words that defy imagination. I always thought of death as one of them, or maybe you can, you know, argue that like orgasm is one of them. Uh, there are moments that kind of stand outside language. And uh, I never thought of solitary, solitary as one of them, but as I started writing this book and working on this book, I realized yeah, that that's actually, you know, one of those experiences uh, where a language kind of falls short, right? You don't have enough words to really address that uh, properly and adequately in fiction. So then I decided to try it myself and, you know, kind of ridiculously in, in, in an apartment in Brooklyn when my roommate was out of town, <clears throat> I, I thought I would just stay in my room because our rooms were upstairs. So the rest of the, and, and upstairs were just two rooms and one bathroom. And we had a kitchen and sitting room downstairs. So I brought some food upstairs uh, in my room. And I thought, you know, I'll stay there for a few days, uh, uh, keep myself, you know, like fed and only use the bathroom similar to what a, uh, 
inmate in solitary confinement, my experience. Uh, but after a few hours, I realized how ridiculous that is because it's not about being alone in a room at all, in solitary, right? It's about uh, a state putting you in a room on your own, right? So you're actually not alone at all. That's the, uh, that's you know like the complicated aspect of this experience. If anything, solitary confinement is about denying you your your solitude. You know, uh, is uh, you're put in a place where the state is right there into your face in a small room with you all the time. Is the closest uh, to your body imaginable, really? You know, you you know, it's basically everything. Like it's on on your skin. You know, just down your throat. It, it, it's everywhere with you in that cell, and that's not a situation you can replicate outside prison you can't just shut the door on yourself and pretend that you're experiencing the same thing that you know someone in heaven is experiencing so <clears throat> i tried uh to do that i tried to you know basically simulate uh the solitary situation in my room here but it's uh, the only thing that i learned about that experience is that it's just the impossibility of it so then I had to rely on, you know, first person accounts of people who've been there. Thank you. I want to read a comment from one viewer. They write, I wonder if you might have had more opening with former prisoners on the subject of solitary confinement if they were in a group discussing it among each, amongst each other. One reluctance may be that the person being interviewed doesn't think the listener could understand their experience, not having anything to compare it with. A group discussion, however, would be difficult during the pandemic. I expect the isolation that is a part of the Zoom experience would be unhelpful. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I wrote this before the pandemic. It, you know, it came out at the beginning of the pandemic. So it, it was comp uh, the research was done several years before we got into this. Uh, but yeah, I think it's it's a very good comment. It's very accurate. Um, uh, definitely, you know, I was this kind of naive, ignorant person you know, just hungry for, for stories, like pushing people, uh, you know, wanting them to tell me as much as they can, not realizing like the limits and like the mental blocks uh, that they have in this process. It actually is similar to, because I, I grew up in, I uh, was in South of Iran during the Iran-Iraq war, right? And so, and my mom was a nurse in like a war zone hospital. So I experienced the, the Iraq war firsthand and I have, you know, I, like, I have a lot of memories and stories uh, from my childhood. So when I get pushed to talk about them, you know, later it happened in Tehran a lot, right? People want, want to kind of hear about like the experience of a child in, in the war zone. Uh, it pissed me off so much because I, I had such a hard time articulating uh, those experiences and, you know, talking about uh, what I witnessed as a child. I can see a similar thing happening when you know someone like me who knows nothing about solitary pushing as, as someone who has been there for stories right it uh, i can see how annoying and irritating it can be but i mean i was lucky that people i talked to most of them were very generous you know despite my obnoxiousness they they were willing to share why do you think fiction by Iranian writers hasn't reached the same level of international acclaim as Iranian cinema or painting? Yeah. Well, I think that a big hurdle on, on their way is censorship. 
um, in Iran, and it's much you know stricter than uh, what you know goes on in like painting or, or cinema. Maybe cinema is a different story because they found the style, uh, a certain kind of imagery, uh, and and that has like a character of its own, and so they kind of found a way. People like Kiarostami. Um, Panohi and others found a way to kind of get around that, uh, you know, uh, censorship obstacle. But in literature, we haven't been able to do that. So, you know, the novel, uh, the thing about the novel is that it has a kind of a unique capacity to address uh, like uh, limit experiences, you know, the moments that, that human beings reach their limit in, in different ways and in different fashion. So, you know, if you want to read a read a story of someone like a religious person who is suddenly kind of crippled by doubt for instance right about the existence of god i think the novel is probably the best uh, literary form uh, that can convey that or i don't know like maybe the story of a political uprising i think the novel is perfect vehicle for communicating that how you know someone kind of finds themselves it's again the eye of the storm the you know, eye of the political storm and you know, uh, start sort of fighting, sacrificing for, for a cause bigger than themselves. I don't know, like experience of love, uh, the intensity of love, uh, fiction can do a really good job uh, bringing that home. And all the things that I said, if you just go a little too far in, you know, any direction, writing about those experiences, you will, you know, rub, run up against uh, the, the wall of the censorship, right? So I think it's, uh, a censorship has completely suffocated Iranian literature over the last like 30, 40 years. 30 years, especially, you know, uh, ironically in the 80s, you know, uh, the censorship didn't have the stranglehold that it has now. Uh, but over the last 30 years, uh, you know, gradually it has kind of chipped away at the ability of writers uh, to, you know, to tell uh, stories they'll tell their stories in the, in the way they wanted to tell them. And as a result, uh, you know, to be fair and honest, like the Iranian literature today, especially in terms of the novel and, and short stories, especially the novel, which is like the main literary genre of our time, doesn't have much to offer to the world, right? The, you know, the, the, all those like truncated uh, stories don't really do justice to their subject matters and to the characters. Uh, in them, and you know, uh, you can't really cheat your way uh, into like the global market, right? When, when you can't write about, when you can't write honestly about your subject, then you know, no, nobody's gonna buy it. So yeah, th uh, there are other factors as well, but I think that the conversation about the Iranian literature today just has to start from censorship. There's no way around it. I get actually a little annoyed when I see, you know, people. Uh, have different sort of you know points of departure discussing that issue. You know, the like the metaphor that I have is that you've got a singer, and uh, the singer is kind of lying on the floor, and the very fat person is sitting on his face, right? And so then there are people analyzing what why that singer singer is not singing or is not singing well without mentioning that fat person, right? Um, yeah, you got to basically make that fat person get up first. And then you know we can that that the, the guy on the floor can actually start singing. Then we can you know start listening to them and see how they sing. 
we haven't really had that opportunity over the last 30 years. So yeah, no wonder, uh, you know, no one knows about uh, our literature. Thank you. I want to read a comment and then a question from two different viewers. Uh, one viewer writes, I would like to point out that there have been memoirs about prisoners being held in solitary for more than 21 days in Iran. Um, and another viewer writes, when interviewing others about solitary confinement and imprisonment, what aspects do you think were hard for them to articulate to you? And how did you fill the gap, so to speak? Mm. Just like the sheer uh, loneliness of, uh, you know, this, uh, because in solitary, the way I kind of understood it after talking to those folks, uh, you kind of become your own enemy after a while, right? Because you start, you know, obsessively kind of digging through the past and, uh, you know, like, I mean, forgetfulness is a survival mechanism, right? We, we are able to forget in order to, to survive. It's an evolutionary uh, process. Um, so yeah, uh, and, and we are very good at, you know, forgetting like the tragedies of, of our life. You know, that's how we basically survive and, and you know, uh, kind of never uh, avoid sort of mental breakdowns as we go along the way. So everything you manage to forget in your daily life just comes rushing back, uh, you know, to haunt you when you're in solitary. And you apparently, uh, from what I hear, obsessively think back on the moments of your life where you, you know, hurt someone or you messed something up or you made a big mistake and you kind of start punishing yourself and, you know, giving yourself a lot of guilt. And yeah, that, uh, that, that's one thing for, for instance, you know, you create a self of yourself that you despise when you're there, right? And you kind of obsessively struggle with that self and think about that self. So that's one reason it's hard to talk about it, you know, with someone else, right? When you get out and, you know, uh, you're asked, hey, what happened there? What were you thinking about? It's not easy to say, yeah, I kind of created a self uh, that I hated and I just, you know, kept hating it uh, through my time there. Yeah, that, that's one reason. There are lots of reasons. I mean, there are, lot, you know, uh, experiences that are, I mean, when you come out are just uh, embarrassing, right? The, like the personal... I don't know, like day day to day activities of you know from like eating and going to the bathroom or just all of, all of these things are going to be, uh, yeah, out of none none of that are going to be ordinary when you're there. So you you know you do things that uh, would be considered embarrassing on this side of the wall. Um, yeah, those are not easy to discuss either. Yeah, but there's a lot. There's a lot. Uh, Thank you. I want to read one more question and then we'll have a few minutes after that if there are any readings from the book you'd like to do. And if not, we can end with a few more questions. So let me ask you this one more question. Yeah. Do you think physical mobility is a major difference between freedom and captivity? If so, do you think women whose freedom of movement has been traditionally controlled and combined, um, combined have an easier time experiencing prison? Um, I don't know about uh women having easier time experiencing prison I, I can't make assumptions and I and the people I interviewed none of them were women so I don't really know uh the answer to that question but uh yeah I mean the ability to move you can argue is basically the definition of freedom right if you you know yeah if you you're absolutely free if you can go from any moment 
in space to any other moment in space at will. I think that's a pretty good definition of freedom. That's why, you know, like just, um, you know, uh, by virtue of being in Iran, like living in Iran and outside the prison, I mean, outside solitary or cell, there is a like a certain level of, you know, the curbing of your freedom. For one thing, you can't just travel there, right? If you want to go anywhere, you need to get a visa. Lots of times you get rejected. So that's, you know, one kind of, you know, constraint on your freedom. So, yeah, I, I do believe that it's a pretty good definition of freedom, right? The ability, to, if you decide to go uh, to another moment, uh, another uh, point in, in space, it might be like in Australia or around the corner, in Delhi around the corner, it can, it can be anywhere. Uh, the, the more options that you have, you know, the more, uh, uh, the, the more ability that that you have to kind of go to different spaces, uh, different points in, in space, the freer you are. Yeah. So then it, it follows that solitary confinement, given like the size of the cell, probably you know the yeah the harshest restriction on, on one's freedom. Thank you. Would you like to do a reading from the book or continue with questions? I mean, we can, I can take questions. I, yeah, I think. Uh, book i mean people can read it uh, yeah it's my sure yeah. okay um one viewer is asking what advice you would have for aspiring writers no i don't really have one read i think that's probably the best advice i can give you know the, the good thing about writing uh it's pretty bad overall like it's a totally underappreciated job you, you, there's no financial gain in it so it's not like a really rational decision uh, for life, I think you, you should be a writer if you really, you know, uh, it's, it's a virus. I mean, if you, if you have that virus, then uh, you should you should do it. But other than that, the good thing about it is, uh, you know, becoming a writer is practically free. I think you know all you need is pen and paper and a you know library card. And uh, yeah, the best thing and a writer can do uh, for themselves, or like a young writer can do for themselves, is reading. You know, reading voraciously, avidly, obsessively, across genres. You know, across cultures, preferably in more than one language. Think uh, being uh, multilingual, if bilingual at least, is really helpful. Uh, you know, for, for a writer because you have. Uh, like different, you know, uh, you understand nuances of one more than language, then it really helps you when you come to your writing language. Uh, you can translate a lot from another language, uh, you know, in terms of like the music of uh, the, the sentences and the rhythm of writing and all of that. Yeah, I think the reading is probably would be my only advice, uh, you know, that's, and, and there's no shortcut uh, to that either. Like. Uh, I know there are like all kinds of workshops and creative writing classes. I'm teaching while, you know, those courses at university as well. Uh, but, but at the end of the year, at the end of the day, uh, if you're not an avid reader, you're probably not going to be a successful writer. I think that's the bottom line. Speaking of reading, which author inspires you the most when writing in English and in Persian? I don't know. There's so many. I mean, I love, uh, Joseph Conrad, uh, for instance, among the, the, the people who write in English, 
Well, you know, uh, there are like certain traditions that I really like. I, I like like the early 20th century modernism a lot, like Joseph Conrad, Virginia Woolf, you know, Ford Maddox Ford was not uh, that known these days. Uh, then I really love the tradition of the post Second World War Jewish American literature, like Saul Bellow, Philip Roth, Bernard Malamud. Uh, those writers I, I really admire, especially just the writing, like the quality of their prose, I think is really stunning and inspiring. Um, and I love uh, like the black American uh, tradition of, of the novel. You know, I'm, I think my favorite novel of all times, probably uh, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Uh, that's a novel that I you know, really like the Bible. I have read maybe like five, read it five, six times. I love James Baldwin, you know, Toni Morrison. There are lots of really amazing writers uh, in that category as well. Um, as for a political novel, uh, which I bring it up because that's the book that I wrote, I'm very deeply inspired by Latin American authors of the boom generation. You know, Mario Vargas Llosa, Carlos Fuentes, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez and those people. And the Egyptian writers, uh, Egyptian novelists have been a great influence on me. You know, Nagib Mahfouz, Sonola Ibrahim, uh, Gamal al uh, those people. Yeah, there's a lot of them. I don't know, I can just keep going. Thank you. You mentioned that there's a Persian translation in the works for this book. Are you gonna make any changes to the Persian translation? I don't know how to see it. If anything, but not, probably not, but, uh, there are uh, like certain kind of inf information in this book and contextualization that I had to do uh, for people who are not Iranians, you know, don't know much about the Iranian history and politics. I'll probably take out uh, those passages, but they're not that many. Maybe, maybe it'd be like a page or two shorter than, than it is in English. But otherwise, no, I wouldn't change anything. Thank you. We have just a few minutes left. I wanted to see if there were any final thoughts you wanted to say, uh, or if you have, you know, just a, kind of a general question, if, if there is anything that kind of gives you hope for the future of Iran, um, just with the last few minutes that we have left. I'm not ready. Um, yeah, don't have a lot of hope. I'm not, I'm not like by, yeah, by character, not a hopeful person anyway. Uh, but no, not not really not like a particular comment. I just want to thank everyone who joined us today, this morning uh, on your side of the country, the afternoon here, and really appreciated you guys uh, took time to be with us. And thanks for your questions. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. We were honored to have you back. We wish it could have been in person and hopefully the next time we'll see you in person at Stanford. Thank you to everyone who stayed on. This conversation was recorded and will be uploaded in a few weeks. Um, hopefully we'll see you again soon. Stay safe. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Thank, Thank you. you. Us too.